And let's give a warm welcome to the host of The H Spot, David Hirschkopf. Well, welcome everyone. Uh, I think you're in for a treat today. We're going to talk about Costco and how it works and maybe there'll be a secret or two in there. And we're talking with a very special guy, Jeremy Smith, who grew up in Connecticut, moved to LA, spent 20 years running a printing and graphics business, then moved to Northern California, the best place, of course, and became a Costco broker and consultant. So he knows Costco in and out. So thanks for joining us. I appreciate you coming on. You're very welcome. And with that introduction, you just told everybody how old I am, but thank you. <laughs> 23, maybe? I, you know, I don't think I'd want to be 23 again, although we were in the concert business, so it was a lot of fun. But I'm happy with my age, but I, I sometimes long for the body to be younger. Yeah, yeah, I can relate that. So... Costco. Wow. What a behemoth. I looked up some stats because I, I don't deal with them on that sort of global basis. I mean, 245,000 employees, roughly 94 million members, about 800 stores. They've been around for 38 years, started in Seattle, still headquartered up there. About only 3,700 items per store or club, as they call them. And I think last year they sold about between five and six million just pumpkin pies alone. And they are number 14 on the Fortune 500, or they were. So, I mean, this is a huge chain, but that operates in a very unusual way. So how did you end up going from, you know, spending 20 years in the sort of graphic arts world to working with Costco? Well, burnout led me to Costco and an opportunity to work with my brother. But I really love being in the graphic arts and the advertising industry. And it's really shaped who I am today and why I bring a different perspective than a traditional brokerage firm. But, you know, after a while, you get tired doing things. And when they become stagnant, I get really bored. And so my brother called me and said, I'm leaving Costco, which was a surprise because he started with them right out of college in Seattle when they only had one building. And he worked his way up. That's why he knew so many of the buyers, because when he started in the early days, a lot of the buyers, it was kind of like the movie story where people started out in the mailroom and then became a producer. He started out pushing carts, which is where most people started in the beginning and then worked his way up and became a building manager, eventually opened the San Francisco location. And so he had been with them a long time. In fact, when he left, Jim Sinegal flew down to meet with him to try and get him to stay on. But he loved Costco and he and I were talking one day and I, and I said, I'm bored. I, I can't do this anymore. I'm starting to put the finger to my head. You know, I, I just, it's too repetitious. And he said, well, why don't you join me in the brokerage business and we'll start this company, which wound up being called Level One Marketing. And that's how I got into it. And, you know, my brother and I work really well together because where he's strong, I might be weak. And where he might be weak, I'd be strong. Although you'll never get him to admit that he's weak in any one area. But it was great working with my brother because we're only 16 months apart and we're really close. Right. So I also have another brother who worked for Costco. But wow. so my brother, Jonathan, and I started working together formed level one marketing and then the rest is history until we sold the company in 2014. Right. So, I mean, obviously part of that's common in that, you know, you see a lot of 
brokers, you know, going to Costco who are ex-Costco employees because they know the system. Yeah, so, but there's something about that that you'll notice that if you look at the top brokers in the market, which I'm sure you don't spend a lot of time looking at that, who's got time, but most of the people that leave Costco to go into the brokerage business are not successful. They expect to become successful. I think, uh, especially from the buyer side, I think the biggest difference is truly understanding operations because it's an operational sell. And since my brother came from operations with another friend of his, I think that gave us a competitive advantage because a lot of times when you're looking at from the buying perspective, that's only one part of the business. The other side is the operational side. Right. So with Costco, obviously very limited selection compared to like, you know, a grocery store, which will have tens of thousands of items in it. It's a direct ship model. There's no distributors and they have a very, you know, small sort of 10, 14% margin, very straightforward with vendors. So it's a very different model. And, and it seems like their I mantra has always that, been, sorry. I think, yeah. I think you ask a few vendors and they'll debate you on how straightforward they really are. They like to think <laughs> they are. But, you know, it's like I always say, you know, Costco will lay out to a broker or to a brand all the rules because they have all these rules you have to read. And then you go in and see the Kirkland Signature items, which violate 70% of the rules. So just because like it's something as simple as a master carton, which is supposed to have at least an inch and a half lip on it, that's supposed to be a strict policy and certain buyers really enforce it. But on the KS items, it's all over the place. But that's sort of apples and oranges, isn't it? I mean, their own KS brand, Kirkland Signature brand, they can do whatever they want with in their own stores, no? Yeah, they can do their own rules. That's what I'm saying. And, and that's one of the things that's unique about Costco. I really look at Costco. You can look at all the numbers, 538 plus stores in the US, warehouses, all, all of that stuff. But in the end, it breaks down to eight individual companies because even though they're all part of one, all of them have their own culture in their regional area based on how the, the GM runs his or her group. And you know you see a lot of differences when you travel around to the other regions, as I'm sure you have, and there's different vibes. And so some regions, like for example, in the days when Costco was doing a lot of couponing, the Midwest region would not do any couponing whatsoever other than if it was something that came from corporate, like an MBM program or a regional buy that had to be done, the Midwest region just didn't like couponing. They liked the original way Costco did business with you get the lowest net net price and there's no bennies. You know, that was way back in the days when they didn't even run demos. And so there is some nicety to the difference between the cultures within the eight regions because one of the beauties versus Costco versus Sam's Club, the Sam's Club is more centralized buying. Costco is centralized and regional. And the regional really gives Costco a competitive advantage because they can find the smaller hot brands that are hot in Austin or in North Carolina or somewhere else that a national buying team isn't going to be able to find those items usually quite the same way the regional can. So it allows them to customize a lot of their locations for the market. And I think that's one of the competitive advantages that Costco has. But if you do well in a region, the regional buyers, category managers, they communicate. So if you do well in one region, you're probably going to get into other regions. And 
if you keep doing well, you'll eventually get it, become a national brand, right? Yes. If the item translates well in the region, some buyers, I can say something now because he's no longer with Costco, but Kevin Jones was an example of a buyer in LA who did his own thing, man. He, he marched to his own group. So if seven out of the eight regions went left, he would almost always go right. And he used to brag about how close he was. I shouldn't say brag. He had a very good relationship with a famous chef in LA and he really liked him a lot. So he would listen to him a lot on how he should do things. He did things very differently, but he was uniquely successful doing things his own way at Costco. And that can be sometimes more challenging for brands because you could go to six out of eight regions and they want to pivot right and go this way and they want to be in a 32 ounce, but the LA buyer wants to be in a 24 ounce and do a six pack instead. So sometimes those things can make life a little more complicated. And then Costco also has a different complication, which for some brands, which is they rotate the buyers quite a bit. And so you can't truly get friendly with a Costco buyer because you don't go, it's not like other retailers where you can go skiing with them and hang out and do other stuff. Costco, that's a big no-no and you can get banned from Costco for trying to do things. You can't give them tickets. So it's a lot different of of the type of relationship. But on top of that, their buyers learn a lot more about various categories that a buyer who's been a 30-year buyer of liquor in a major retailer doesn't know anything about what's going on in the pasta sauce or the dip category. Yeah, I definitely hear what you're saying. But how much do you feel like the buyers, you know, have a formula that they follow versus, you know, they're a little bit more arbitrary by personal taste? Well, I think that's one of the challenges is that there are a lot of buyers who base everything on their own taste and they can miss things. So for example, when we first went to Costco with Giovanni, most of the buyers believe that FIA had the right plan and that people were, because they were selling like a, a plane and a vanilla and a pint. And they didn't think that Chobani was going to be successful at Costco with Greek yogurt fruit in a cups. So they felt that Dannon and Stonyfield had that market locked up and Chobani proved them completely wrong. So, you know, and, and I'm not saying that the buyers are always right or the buyers are always wrong. I think it's a mix of things, but I think it's really important that brands understand that if you go in and you've got an apricot flavor and it's number 10 and the buyer says, oh, I want to bring an apricot and it's your first rotation and you know it's going to bomb, you shouldn't go along with that. And I've seen it happen a lot with brands. They'll go along because they want to get an item into Costco and then they've got this ugly mark on their record of selling $600 a week in a category they should be doing $1,200. And then it's really hard. You pick up the phone, you call the buyer in the Bay Area and they said, I don't want that turkey down here, you know? Right. So you, right. you have to really be careful and strategic with what you do. And once the buyers understand, you really know what you're talking about. Because in defense of the buyers, a lot of brands go in and bullshit the buyers about what they know about the category and what, you know, and how much better their product is. They get too salesy. Again, Costco is not a rah-rah, this is the greatest cup of coffee in the world. This is what you should be buying. Costco wants you to be factual when you're there and they want a story about the brand, 
but they want you to take the bull out of it and really focus on what makes you different. So like if you're trying to sell kale to Costco and there's already a vendor in there, you've got to differentiate yourself so that people understand why you shouldn't be at 28 cents like you're an ounce, like your competitor. I should be at 33 cents an ounce because we process our stuff differently. And right. you'll notice so, that within categories that some items are much higher priced. And there's a reason behind that. But a lot of vendors don't understand that unless they talk to somebody who has a lot of experience selling premium brands. Right. So, I mean, that's where this Costco is more similar to supermarkets and, and other businesses in that you often see people sell to get on the shelf without much thought to getting sold off the shelf. So, you know, you're going to pay 20, 30 grand to get on a supermarket and you're going to sit on the shelf and get kicked out six, 12 months later because you didn't think it through. But with Costco, I mean, you hear an immense amount of conversation when you talk to buyers and brokers about the size, you know, are you going to single larger bottle? Are you going to yeah. two pack? And is it shrunk together, the two bottles? And I mean, how important is deciding on the price point and the price per ounce and the size? I mean, most people just say, my item sells really well. I'm going to go in there and does it make that much difference? I mean, how much of the equation is getting that little logistical piece right? Because it seems like a lot of the conversation. It's the most important piece to start with. First of all, whether you own your own plant or you co-pack, you don't want to create a high volume package that is inefficient at your plant. So the first thing to figure out is the value and what you can produce. Like if Costco currently, let's say all the competitors are in a 28 ounce bottle, that doesn't mean you should go into one just to compete with the competition because everyone else is doing it. There may be a good reason to do that, but the question is what is going to be efficient for you to produce? And a lot of times brokers don't advise their clients that they really need to look at that because you can lose pennies at Safeway and make it up somewhere else. At Costco, you lose pennies. Before you know it, you've just lost $75,000. And so it is really important to evaluate that because everything's based on volume. First of all, you've got to price your product based on the fact that you will get the volume in truckloads. And you've got to hold the buyer accountable to that. If the buyer wants to do a test in a smaller quantity, that's fine. But in once you get rolling, if they're not meeting the volume requirements, they shouldn't be getting the large discounts, which is about a 20% value at cost, which is compared to your distributor or if you're selling directly to a retailer. That's the first equation that Costco is looking at. Right. So you're saying 20% lower than you would sell to a grocery chain? Well, if there's a distributor involved, if that's who you're ultimately selling to, to get into that grocer, then the price has to be compared to the distributor. Okay. Because Costco has figured out the game. In the beginning, they thought they were getting a great deal when they looked at value at retail, but then they didn't factor in how much the distributor was costing and then what the grocer's markup was. And they changed that quickly. But then there's also the value in the category. So you could come in with a, what's a great value for your brand, but everybody else has a much better value overall with their product than what you have. Now, again, this all goes back to whether you have premium ingredients versus your competitors. So 
like Faye, for example, is more than Shabani because Faye was able to convince Costco that their actual process is slower, more time consuming, more expensive to reach the product that they create. So there, that's all factual. You can verify that. You can demonstrate that. And those are areas where you then create a great value, but you're also more expensive than what the other brands are within that category. But if you just go in and say, well, we use quinoa and quinoa just went up 45%, but it's only 4% of your product. You've got no reason to say that you should be 40% more because it's something that's only 4% of your ingredient debt. Right. So th that seems pretty clear about, you know, value of your product usually sells for X. They want to see like a discount to the category and they want to see a discount to what you would be selling to distributors. But like, what about promotions and support? Usually around like 9%-ish is like a demo allowance, 9, 10%. And then you got the MDMs, which is the big mailer that goes out with a discount. So, I mean, brands usually overall just sort of lock in like around a 10% promotion and, and is that well effective? things have changed a little bit at costco in that you really can't go over 10 percent anymore so people that want to spend more than 10 percent, there is a way to sort of get around it a little bit by doing something called investment spending but you can't build that into cost of goods so costco i think is very fair in that they allow you to build up to 10 percent into the demo accrual now that demo accrual especially now with the pandemic since they really aren't running traditional demos that can be used for a TPD, which is a coupon. It can be used for other end caps. It can be used for other things. Costco views that as their money because they're allowing you to build up to 10% of an accrual into the product. Some products don't demo well, so you shouldn't really build that in and they should be sold net net. But most products do need demos. And no matter what Costco offers, demos are still the best bang for the buck overall in a non-pandemic world. Right. Only because Costco has such a high member count. You would just roughly 2,000 to 3,000 people going through a building versus a supermarket, which would have less. It's also that it's impulse buying. So you're getting an opportunity to taste something right there and then go buy it right there. That's really important. And that's what part of the Costco experience is all about. And they're kind of missing that right now. Right. So I was talking to a guy once, former Costco guy, and he did a lot of like deep analysis on like demos and like the patterns. He said there's a way to do it much more strategically. We don't have to go through the details or something like that, but is that something that rings true with you that there's a more strategic way to do that? Well, technically he's hundred percent right, but by Costco's rules, what he would create where he runs more demos in one building warehouse than another warehouse, he would be in violation at the end of the demo year of the agreement. He probably hasn't read the demo agreement. The same dollar amount must be spent in every building. So if you agree to spend 10% of sales in a Costco region, 10% must be spent in every single building that you're in. Costco ranks their buildings as A buildings, B buildings, C buildings. Most clients would much rather run all of their demos in an A building and not a B in a C building. Costco usually won't allow that, but the only one who can approve it is a buyer. If you right. went in and just did it on your own as you book the demos, what will happen is when the Costco has the outside audit company go and look at the demos, they'll see three buildings in the Bay Area got their demos, but 36 buildings that were C buildings got a 
6%, and then you'll have to pay back the difference between, let's say it was a 10% demo accrual, the difference between the 6% and the 10%. So you would owe Costco 4%. Now, I don't know how, unless he's come up with some way other than an investment spend is the only way you can spend more in some buildings, but a buyer still has to sign off on that. That's not easy to get sign off on. They, they really frown upon it. And the building managers have a lot of power and the building managers can discontinue an item if they want. And so if the building managers found out that another building was getting more demos over his or her building, they might cancel your item. Right. So there's risk. So which sort of brands use a broker to go to Costco and which ones don't? And where do you think it makes more sense to use a broker? And when do you think maybe it's okay or better not to use one? Well, if you look at a traditional company, very few companies can run a sales organization at 5% or less cost of sales. So let's say you're a larger brand and you're going to pay your broker 3% commission because your brand has been around for 60 years and is very successful and is a billion dollar brand. There's less incentive for them because they already have their sales teams, but it doesn't mean that their sales teams are really good with Costco. And at the same time, not all brokers are equal, but let's assume for now that we're comparing apples to apples, great sales team at the vendor, great sales team at the broker. You know, Costco requires an exorbitant amount of time to get hold of the buyers. And if I was running an organization, a food brand or beverage brand, after I knew how long it actually takes to get hold of a buyer and how much time you have to spend, there's almost no way I would want my sales team trying to get hold of a Costco buyer because it's inefficient and you're better off farming it out to a broker for 5% or less, assuming they're competent because you don't have the cost of insurance and flights. It's all on them and you let them take care of it. Because there are times I have to try and call a buyer 10, 15 times during a day to finally get hold of them in between a meeting to get an answer. And most salespeople that are focused on other retailers don't have the time to really do that. It's an extensive amount of time. I don't know if you've done it on your own or tried to do it on your own, but it's a lot more work trying to get hold of the buyers one of the other advantages, if a truck is delayed or something like that, rather be a buyer calling the broker and yelling at them than calling and yelling <laughs> at me. And believe me, I, I've, I've had my salespeople yelled at on Christmas by a buyer. That wouldn't be my rationale to use a broker. But you know, we've always used brokers, but we use brokers partly for the same reason we use them with supermarkets is that they just have the connection. They're talking to the buyers anyways. So they just have a much more of a communication channel. The downside, of course, is that they have a bunch of other vendors. So sometimes you don't get as much mind share. Part of that, though, is how you manage it. When we ran level one, we had three sales meetings a week in general. Most brokers don't do that, but we're obsessive compulsive. So we need to be talking to our clients and our sales team every day. And a lot of brokers you get lost at because... You know, you got to remember, you're not paying these people anything unless they sell something. It's right. not necessarily the best bargain when you think about it, that you have to go out as a broker with no retainer. Like most retail brokers know how long it takes. Costco can sometimes be a little bit quicker, but not always. 
And for some reason, the, the Costco brokerage business got set up where there weren't retainers. So you're out there asking somebody to work on their own for free. But at the same time, you've got to treat them just like they're an employee of your company. And you should be having weekly sales meetings, even if the broker doesn't want to do that. Right. Because an unmanaged broker winds up becoming a lazy broker only because, and I know every broker that hears this is going to scream, but it's natural for salespeople, whether they work for a regular brand and they're doing all the stuff without a broker or whether they work for a broker, it's natural to take the easy pickings first. And so like you're in the pasta sauce business, that's not the easiest category at Costco. So if somebody has a potato chip, that's a much easier category because there's more skew openings. So the salesperson is more likely to spend time on something he or she can make commission on, or in most cases, they, unfortunately, the broker industry doesn't pay commissions. We're one of the few companies that does, because I think that's how you reward people properly, but right. that's a whole other story. Discussion. Well, but, but that's understandable. That's sort of human nature. And I expect people would do the easier and more profitable over the less profitable and harder. But, it should, but that's not the way it should be. Right. I understand. But even with the connection that the broker has, wouldn't you say it's advisable in a number of instances that for buyer meetings, that someone from the vendor side should actually be in the meeting? Oh, without a doubt. Some brokers won't do that. I think that they should go see a therapist about what's wrong with them because they either feel threatened or they worry. I've talked to other brokers that do this and they feel like they'll be devalued if they let the client come to the meeting. But I've always felt, and we've always worked the way that the vendor should be there because first of all, sometimes decisions can happen at a meeting that a broker's not authorized to make. And the buyer also wants to get to know the vendor and the brand well. And so together, working together allows you to be more successful. And there are times where there are subjects that might be more challenging regarding manufacturing where sometimes the client does need to speak directly to the buyer about what's going on. You've had a horrendous recall. The broker generally is not the company that should be dealing with the recall because there's so much involved with it. And so they can be in partnership with it, but I agree with your comment that you should definitely be involved. And if a broker tells you that you can't go to the meetings or they won't provide you with information, that should be a red flag for you right away. Think about it this way. If a salesperson says, no, Dave, I don't want you at the meeting. I'm doing this all by myself and you cannot go. You probably wouldn't hire that person or you'd have a discussion with them and work it out. So that's a red flag warning in working with a broker. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely had brokers that some encouraged it, some discouraged it. I mean, I personally think you should be there because even great brokers I've had, they don't know the product nearly as well as I do. If you're somewhat likable, then going in there and Achieving rapport with the buyer only makes them feel warmer and fuzzier about the company and they want to feel good about what they're selling and the people behind it. I do think if you're very unlikable or if you're prone to say things that really should not be said, that maybe you're not the person to sit in on that meeting. (laughs) (laughs) I think you should listen to your broker's advice because they are the expert in a lot of ways, but yeah, I think of those instances. So with a company not selling to Costco yet, they want to sell to Costco. What would be like three quick tips? So are you saying they're a new brand and they're evaluating whether or not they want to sell to Costco? No, they want to sell to Costco. But what are three quick tips on how to get in and how to be successful? 
Well, first of all, you have to evaluate your supply and manufacturing channels right away because I can't tell you how many times the clients told me that, especially with smaller emerging food brands, that they're ready to rock and roll. And it's about 80% of the time they're not when they really dig into the paperwork. So it's really important to understand the type of volume and what Costco's expectations are. I have a term I use, you have to be able to move at the speed of Costco because if an item does take off, they want to move very quickly. And then you have to evaluate right away the value it costs. You don't want to spend three months working on your packaging for Costco when you don't know if you can get to the value at cost. You need to know right away whether you can get to that value at cost because if for some reason, let's say you can only get to a 12% value at cost, the odds of you getting into Costco have been reduced by at least 60%, depending upon the region. There's a few regions that don't look at it as harshly, but most of them do. So those are important things to look at right away. And then the last one would be to make sure that you, internally, this is something that you're able to do. If you have a co-packer or you own your own plant, that you have the ability to create the right pack size for Costco so that you have the right value, but you also separate your channels so that you don't have any channel conflicts. Right. And the last thing would be whatever region you go into, you want to make sure you have as much distribution and ACV as possible when you go into Costco. So distribution and ACV outside of Costco to show it's that you're critical. successful in the marketplace. Yes. Okay. And then if this is a new person, they should try to find a Costco broker or just try to call up the local buyer or like... Well, you know, it's sort of like if you live near a gas station and you're just learning about how to use matches, should you light it up or not? I've been with some pretty good sized vendors that went to Costco on their own first. And when I saw the terms that the Costco buyer had negotiated with them, I was embarrassed. I couldn't believe Costco took them for a ride on the terms. So you want to have as much knowledge to make a decision on what's right for you. I mean, one of the first questions you should be asking yourself is why do you want to go to Costco? It's the number one hardest retailer to get into, and it's the most disloyal. They're only loyal to their members. They're not loyal to brands. So Jabani was canceled at Costco. Stacy's Pita Chips was canceled at Costco. These are all big brands. They were canceled because Costco wanted to try other brands. So there's no loyalty there. So you want to make sure that all of your business outside of Costco is in line, safe, a strong foundation for your brand, and then you go to Costco. But you have to evaluate all of those things and then find an expert, somebody like me. There's a lot of us out there that can help advise you. And every broker will talk to you and give you advice. And one of the worst places for advice, and it's the most common place that people go, they'll go to their best friend at another brand. And when you get outside of the category that you're going into, the advice coming from someone else on who to use as a broker or what you should do can be very different because their experience is different. So if you go to a broker that specializes in ship category, then that's where most of their experience is and you're a frozen item and your buddy over at his chip shop says, this is the great place to work with. You want to have a conversation with that broker about whether or not they've worked with this buyer before. And then the other thing is I always tell people the number one question everyone asks a broker is, do you have good relationships with a buyer? Well, no one's going to tell you that Dave loves us and Sandy doesn't like us. 
the question you want to ask them is how many SKUs do they have in Costco, especially in your right. category? Right. Absolutely. I mean, I know what you said, they're disloyal was the word you used, but I mean, they don't pretend up front like it's a lifelong relationship. So, I mean, I think everyone going in understands, but at the same time, compared to grocery stores, it's a very straightforward sale. With me, at least, they've always done what they said. So I had a good feeling in dealing with them. And they've built a lot of brands. I mean, like Crave and the Food Should Feel Good, Feel Good Food. I forgot what it's called. Um, yeah, I know what you're talking about. A number of brands, like they gained visibility through like gazillion demos and all that through Costco. But like, what's in it? One example of a brand that you think is a success story with Costco and one that's a fail, that there was something that went awry. Well, I would say let's start with the fail. Permizzi was a complete failure at Costco. They were a kind of in between a Stacy's pita chip and kind of like an Italian chip. And everyone loved the chip that tasted it. But we went into actually, it failed in the Northeast when we went into the Northeast, failed in Texas, which was their home state. And in spite of it failing, this is how much the buyers liked the chip. The Bay Area brought it in and it failed there. And the reason, you know, there's always reasons if an item fails to connect at Costco. And some of it is, and I think this is what ultimately hurt Pop Chips, was that Pop Chips was a very good chip in smaller amounts to eat. But you have to look at your product and say, just because it does well at Whole Foods or at Kroger's, will it do well at Costco in a large volume? Like in the chip category, the measurement is, will a bunch of guys that want to sit in front of the TV drinking beer and watching the Super Bowl and women, will they sit down and eat a whole bag of that? Potato chip, a tortilla chip, yes. A kale chip, no. So some of those things that you want to look at day one before you launch a Costco, because while the data might tell you that you need to be in a 22-ounce bag because you've hit all the points, nobody's going to go through a 22-ounce bag of kale chips quickly. Right. From a success story... Besides Crave, you know, of course, Chobani was incredibly successful. And it was one of the few brands that actually got more successful as time went on. Most brands, when they hit their number, they level off. Um, Chobani never, I mean, now it has because they've been in the market for so long. But they hit numbers that Costco did not think was possible. They were out selling eggs and cigarettes wow. in a lot of regions. And, you know, it became with one single SKU, and this is kind of like the one unicorn dream brand, they were doing over a hundred million in sales with one SKU. And so, you know, they're an amazing story where everything came together in a way. They're also a very highly unusual group of people that taught us a lot about, you know, how to build momentum and drive a brand. And one of probably the least, the most underappreciated part of Chobani was that they understood their consumer better than probably most of the other yogurt brands. And when the buyers told them, let's go develop this, if they didn't believe in it, they wouldn't just go do it like a lot of other brands do. And so they let their competitors take some of the business and those items all failed because Chobani's data told them that no one's going to buy a vanilla 12 pack cup, but the buyer insisted on going forward and she even said to Chobani, well, I'm going to your number one competitor. And they said, we wish you luck and make sure you get markdown money. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? Threat. She learned from that. And then she gave them even more business to Chobani because she knew they weren't bullshitting her. They knew their stuff. Right. I, I think that's a great lesson for 
for every part of business is knowing your consumer because you know that's how you learn to promote correctly and price correctly and pick the right flavors and all that. But I mean, certainly it's always great to be in the position where you're the number one seller and you have that leverage that you can, you can. Yeah, but it took them a lot, you know, it took them a bit to get there. So, you know, they were just like everybody else. I mean, think about it. You're going into the yogurt category, which was already slowing. Nobody was interested in Greek yogurt or really heard of Greek yogurt other than the Faye aficionados, which were a small group of people. And Faye was number one in the category. So if you were going to go into a category Greek yogurt was not the category that you would pick to go into, but they knew something that everyone else didn't know. And they were very successful. Crave was the same sort of thing. Everyone tried to crack the female jerky customer. Um, John Sebastiani was the only one who actually cracked it. Right. And there've been numerous others that have tried since and are still trying, but the soft soft chew jerky was definitely a thing. Actually, you know, it's funny. There's so many categories that have succeeded like that where we had pilot projects on very small scales, like many years ago in a lot of these categories where we never went to market with anything, but it's like, hey, wait. And there's probably hundreds of us out there who are like, hey, I thought of that idea years ago, but <laughs> the person that actually well, executes it and does it really well, that they get the spoils because that's our system. Well, yeah, there's no shortage of good ideas. We used to chase ideas when we first started and then we realized that we have to chase people that can execute because almost all these brands stall between five and 12 million. And so as a broker, you could do a whole podcast on how you select brands. I mean, it, it's not easy. And you if say you can they back- stall between five and 12 million, is that their sales with Costco or you mean in general? No, overall as companies, most of the brands that you see at Expo West when they launch, they'll never get beyond 10 to 12 million in sales. Most of them wind up roughly tapping out around five to 12 million. And they struggle to get above that. And then about 5% of them crack open to 20 million or 50 million and are happy with that and sometimes get acquired. Yeah. It's just hard if you just run the numbers of like numbers of stores, turns per store, number of flavors in each store. I mean, it's just so hard because First, you have to have an amazing velocity. You have to sell so many units per store. And then you have to do, you know, 10,000 plus stores. Plus you probably have to hit other channels, you know, like club and food service, whatever. To just do all that well is tough. That's why most VC firms won't put much value on the Costco business either on your sales. So that's why Stacy's Pita Chips, when it was sold, they did really well because Pepsi bought them. But if they had gone to somebody like a TPG or somebody like an outside private equity firm, they wouldn't have given them the full value based on the Costco business, which was most of their business. But Pepsi knew they could just pack it onto their trucks and build the business. So you got to look at all of those things. And I would never start a food brand. I, it's, you gotta <laughs> Today. I have, ideas. I have ideas for even more food brands. Let me say something and tell me if this sounds correct to you. So with Costco, the range of business for a vendor is anywhere from, well, you're going to do a road show, which you probably won't make any money. And, and then you're talking about thousands of dollars of sales, probably not tens and tens of thousands. Or if you're not doing that, you're going to do a single rotation in one region, which is going to be between 30 and $100,000 in sales. 
or you're going to do a single rotation in multiple regions, which obviously you can multiply it out from there, or you're going to do a nationwide single rotation, or you're going to be year round. And this is all based on how many dollars per week per building you sell. And if you're a national year round brand, which totally varies by category, but you're talking what, at least eight or $10 million a year. It can be, yes, it can be. It depends on what the category is and where you are and all that other stuff. Like in yogurt, which has much higher thresholds, you'd probably be closer to this. 10 would be on the low side, somewhere around 16 or 17 million. You know, same thing with like an oat milk, but you know, a lot of it's going to depend on turns. And so that's really where you go back to our original conversation at the beginning is you have to be in the perfect pack size. Costco's goal is to turn an item in 14 days. That's why it says lead time. It used to say lead time 14 days on the buy docs when they gave them to you. They want everything to sell in 14 to 21 days. So in your mind, you can do the math and figure out where you have to be based on a certain pack size. But it depends too at the stage because what happens a lot of times when you come in and you're a new something to the category, then you get the copycats. And so that's a whole nother thing that cuts into your business. Someone comes in goes to the buyer and goes, you know what, why are you with them, Maureen? I can do this for 25% less. And so you've got that chomp and Costco buyers love that because at the very least, they're going to be able to walk away with a discount off what they're getting, even if they stay with whoever they're with. So a lot of people think you just get an item in Costco and then if it sells regularly and hits the numbers, the broker doesn't have anything else to do, but you have to be paranoid all the time because there's always somebody working. And then there's Big Daddy back at Issaquah who says, you know what? I love this category. Let's wipe them out. We're going to bring in Kirkland Signature and we're going to take over the whole category and we're going to own it and buy. Yeah. And now I just saw a number. Kirkland Signature is now 25% of Costco sales. That's what happened in Pasta Sauce was there were only like four spaces or five or six spaces, depending on where you're talking. And they came in with one or two with KS, Kirkland Signature. And so then you're competing for like three or four spaces of which one or two are like locked up by not big national brands. So in some regions, you're competing for maybe one space that, you know, a specialty or gourmet brand could rotate in. So it, and you just a did a great job at Sorry? explaining why Costco should A, not be the first place you go to early on. It should be your last stop. And why it should always be, you know, no more than 15 to 16% of your business, because they sometimes wake up and get out of category. So you go, let's get like goji berries used to be the thing there. They're all gone now. They haven't had really many goji berry products in there, but all these companies develop goji berries, spent millions of dollars developing them. Same thing with low carb, low carb here, low carb gone. You know, I'm, I'm surprised keto stuck as long as it has, and it's done as well as it has. But you got to watch for those things when you're going in there. So, you know, the best thing in the world is always to have a balanced business. Right, right. Absolutely. So is there one final thing that you think people should know about how to succeed with Costco or something that's interesting about Costco? I would say that Costco should be part of your strategy because I'll just go back to the Chobani example. They were primarily a Northeast brand in the beginning. 
And a lot of the big retailers said no early on. This was very early on, like 2014. But when they saw Chobani and Costco, then all of a sudden they called Chobani and said, yeah, we want you to come in. So Costco is a lot like Apple, where they have a huge halo effect in the marketplace. So you can use Costco to get yourself distribution. And that's a whole nother strategy into itself. But I think it is important to sometimes think about Costco that way. Never count on it being a big part of your business. If it is, God bless you. But for most people, I was looking at a statistic the other day, 90% of all items or brands that go to Costco don't last more than six months. Wow. I wonder what that stat would be for grocery stores, because there's a certain rotation there. And there you get, they're taking slotting. So they're taking a fee to put you on the shelf. So if they rotate people in and out, it's even better. They don't rotate as quickly as Costco does, because Costco knows whether they have an item in two weeks. Your first two weeks of sales, if you're doing $400 a week, you're done. You're finished. Pack it in. I get clients where that happens. They're like, well, we'll spend more on demos. I said, you can't take an item that's doing $400 a week and turn it into a $1,200 a week item with demos, coupons. You're just like a car that needs an $8,000 repair and it's worth $2,000. Sell it. <laughs> yeah, I feel that. All right, well, I still love Costco as both a member and a vendor. And yes. I'd like to thank you very much for your time and for coming on and explaining all this to me and everyone listening. I really do appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. And thank you for listening to me to ramble on about this, but it's, it's what I love doing. So great. Give it up for Dave Hirschkopf, everybody. You've been listening to the H spot on the funnel radio channel. Never miss an episode. Be sure to subscribe at the H spot podcast.com.